We've tried singing a couple of songs this morning with no words on the screen, not entirely intentional, um, but it just shows how wimpy we've got with our technology, doesn't it? People used to remember stuff. Up until Gutenberg pulled out the printing press, uh, people knew scripture, and they knew the traditions of their families and their communities, not because they were written down, but because they were here and here. Um, let's, let's pray before we come to look at, at God's word. Let's pray. Father God, as we have been reading this part of your word together, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians, we've, we've often been conscious of our need to understand what it is that Paul was writing and, and what that might say to us. Uh, we're very conscious of that need today. Lord, help us to understand this, to get it. But Lord, we pray too that we would go, go much further than that. Lord, our desire is to stand under your word, to submit ourselves to its authority and to learn from you how you want us to live. So come and uh, speak to us today. Let us hear you uh, so that we might obey you. Amen. I'm just looking to see, have the Bible class made it back in yet? Are they here somewhere? Yep, up in that corner. Good to see you guys. Uh, the Bible class are in church today as a bit of a field trip to come and see what church is like. So, um, and then we'll go and talk to them next week about their experience. Um, uh, David got the easy job. He set up the field trip and I have to go and talk to them uh, next week. So, good to have you with us, guys. Just for your sake and for anybody visiting with us or who hasn't been around for a while, just a reminder that we've been studying Paul's letter to the church in Corinth for uh, on and off for the last six months. And when Paul addressed his letter, so when he, not that he used an envelope, but if he had the, the address that he wrote on it, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, to the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. So it's the church of God. Paul says that this church doesn't belong to the Presbyterian church in Corinth or the church of Ireland in Corinth, not that it would, um, but it doesn't belong to anyone other than God. It's the church of God in Corinth. But he goes on and he says to the people in that church, they're sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Those are, those are big words uh, or not easily understood, maybe sanctified and, and holy. But what Paul means by that is he wants the, the guys in the church to be totally different than, than others in the city. That the church was to be a brand new community of his people who would show the city of Corinth what God is like. And if the church wasn't different, if the, the church was just the same as the people around it in Corinth, then it, then it wasn't working. It just wasn't doing what it was meant to do. It wasn't showing people what God is like and what it's like to live in, in his family. So by the time we get to chapter 11 in our letter, 
Paul's dealing with a couple of areas where the believers in Corinth are failing to shine for God. A couple of weeks ago, you thought together about the relationships between the, the sexes. And this morning, we're going to think about the relationship between members of different classes. Those things, by the way, would be divisive in any culture at any time, potentially divisive. So it's not surprising that they were in Corinth. As I say, a fortnight ago, you, you thought about the first half of the chapter, and namely the relationship between the sexes. You notice there that the, the believers in Corinth had seen that in Christ, um, there's, a, there's a radical equality of men and women. But what the people in Corinth had done is that they'd overreached that. They've overstretched that, and they'd ended up diminishing the differences that remain between the two genders, something that God had always purposed uh, to be the way since creation. So that's what Paul dealt with in the first half of, of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. And this morning in the second half of the chapter, he challenges the Corinthians in a different area. This time that they'd, they'd not gone far enough with the, the reach of the gospel, if you like, the, the consequences of the gospel for for social interaction. There was a class division in Corinth between rich and poor, and that same class division was still being borne out in the church. And as we'll see this morning, the gospel undermines these kind of social divisions. So just before we work out exactly what the problem is, notice in verse 17 that it's a big deal. Your meetings do more harm than good. That, that's pretty stark. Paul says whatever it is that's happening there that we're going to try and discern, it's as, it's, as, it's as much a problem that you guys might be better not meeting at all. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Maybe you often have that experience in the community of God's people where you go home when you think, flip. I'd be better, or we'd been better, not being together today at all. And the reason Paul speaks out so strongly, verse 18, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Now Paul's talked about divisions in the church in Corinth before. So in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, Some come from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. I mean this. One of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And another, I follow Christ. So they were divided about which of the church leaders uh, they thought was the best and, and whose lead they were following. So that was one type of division. And Paul dealt with that in the early chapters. But here in chapter 11, he's talking about a different kind of division. It's a social divide. Rich and poor. And by the way, the NIV titles at this point in Corinthians don't help us very much. It says it's about the Lord's Supper. As we'll see, it's not really. Uh, the Lord's Supper is, is kind of the context in which this problem uh, rears its head. But the problem is between rich and poor. Whenever you read Corinthians as a whole and, and you look for a particular... Uh, you look for the, the socioeconomic suggestions about it, you, you soon realize that the Corinthian church was made up of a diverse group of people. 
Paul says in chapter 1, verse 26, not many of you were of noble birth, so they're clearly not all wealthy people, but some of them, even, even that verse implies are, and, and we'll see today that that's likely the case. So this is a mixed church, uh, wealthy and less wealthy people worshipping together, and that doesn't bother Paul. In fact, that's great, because that's exactly what the gospel does it brings rich and poor people together around Jesus Christ. So the differences don't bother Paul. What bothers Paul is that the Christians in the church have allowed those differences to affect how they relate to one another. Instead of loving one another as equals and as members of one body, rich Christians are discriminating against poor Christians and treating them differently. And to make matters worse, all of this is happening in their, their worship service around the, the Lord's table, as he calls it. This, this meal that was given to them as a symbol of their togetherness becomes a place of division. So let's, let's think about what actually happened. What was happening in Corinth? Let's see if we can work this out. The first thing we've got to do is remember that this what we do is nothing like what church in Corinth was like. No big buildings, no pews. They met in homes and they met around meals. That was the only way they had of doing church. This thing here wouldn't have been recognizable. They didn't do any of that. So in the context of their normal meals, they shared bread and they shared wine to remind them about Jesus. Uh, because that's what Jesus had said his disciples would do. And they thought, I'm sure, that they were pleasing God. You know, we're doing the thing Jesus said. Let's, let's have bread and wine together. But Paul challenges them. He says in verse 20, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. Guys, the way you're getting on is not something that Jesus Christ would recognize as the Lord's Supper that he gave you. And then verse 21, he starts to be more particular and specific about what the problem might be. He says, as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Now again, because we don't, we aren't a church that gathers to eat meals together. It's, it takes us a while to think, well, what, what's he talking about? How might that actually work? So let's try and imagine the scene. You're in Corinth. Sunday is a normal working day. It's not like our Sunday. So whatever time you said you were going to start your worship service or your worship meal together, probably not everybody's able to arrive at the same time depending on what people have been committed to doing that day. People were coming probably after their work. The commentators say that it's possible, maybe, maybe the wealthy guys in the community, the heads of households and landowners, those who didn't have to be tied to their work, maybe they got there early. And just imagine that they were, they were free to, to go ahead and start eating whatever food was on offer. So maybe, maybe you have the rich people eating and drinking as soon as they've arrived and they allow the others who arrive just to make do whatever's left. A couple of watsits left in a bowl is what you get for your tea if you're too late. 
possibly a, a scenario like that. Maybe there was something else going on. Maybe, maybe everyone was arriving at the meal bringing their own food. So you have rich guys eating the first century equivalent of, of caviar and fine wine sitting around the table with people right beside them who, who didn't have much to bring or, or certainly uh, nothing, nothing that would compare with their, their neighbor beside them. A, a third suggestion that they, they make in the commentaries is that they, they might actually not have been eating together at all. Um, as we've already said, there's no church building, there's no big church hall. So the Christians depended on the hospitality of wealthy homeowners to invite the church to gather in their community. And the archaeologists tell us that the dining rooms, the place traditionally set aside for eating in these houses, wouldn't be any bigger than the dining room in a modern house. So no more than a dozen people uh, would be gathering around a table there. But there'd be a courtyard or an atrium where up to 100 people might comfortably be accommodated. So maybe what was going on was that the wealthy host was inviting his good pals to come into the, the dining room. Come on in here. We'll have the nice stuff together. And the rest of the church would make do with whatever little was an offer or whatever they brought along themselves. Whatever the exact way of it, and we can't be sure, we know that some people were leaving church family meals on a weekly basis, hungry, while others were stuffed to the gills and beyond. Paul's horrified. Verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? And this, this is where we start to get some clues as to who he is getting at, who his challenge is for. Paul's target at this point in his argument is the wealthy. Don't you have homes where you could go and eat? He's challenging the wealthy about their behavior and their willingness to show contempt for less wealthy members of their community. He asks, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. It seems to me unlikely that the rich in Corinth deliberately chose to humiliate the poorer members of their church. It seems to me more likely that they simply weren't thinking hard enough about or deep enough about the implications of the gospel for the whole of life. They were simply living out the, the normal patterns of the culture around them without challenging those patterns by the, the realities of the kingdom of God. And I would imagine that if we have a, anything to think about this in this area, it's probably the same. I don't sense that there'd be a huge uh, desire in our community to use wealth to humiliate other people. But maybe there's something about the way our culture works that allows this still to happen and for it to go unquestioned. So I've been thinking long and hard this week about how this maybe applies 
in a culture and in a church like ours in 2012, is it possible that poorer people might feel discriminated against or less welcome in a community like ours? Is that possible? On reflection, I think that it may be. And let me offer tentatively the following reflection on the role of brands in our culture and in our church. Brands are the badges on the things that we consume, our clothes and our gadgets and our cars, for example. Now, it's always been the case that some products produced are of an inherently better quality than others and that they rightfully, therefore, demand a higher price. That dynamic's always existed. And, and quality is a, a lovely thing, a gift from God. But excessive branding in recent times has confused this issue, I think. So we've reached a point in our culture where we're willing to pay over the odds uh, for a branded item, just so that we can have that brand. Heard a radio phone in recently where people were talking about buying 200 pound pairs of jeans. In our heart of hearts, we know that a 200 pound pair of jeans isn't awfully much different than a, a 30 or 40 pound pair of jeans. The 90 quid hoodie, we know in our heart of hearts is made of the same cotton uh, as the 20 quid equivalent. But yet we're willing to pay the big bucks so that we can be seen to be wearing the brands. And that's all okay until you start to think about what's happening there. Because brands are about exclusivity. When I wear a brand, I'm part of an exclusive club. And only people with as much money and as much good taste as me get to be part of that club. Wearing brands means I'm accepted by the right crowd. Do you see now the problem with a lifestyle overly focused on brands? It's about creating a circle of cool people like me who have the taste and the money and about leaving everybody else out. And I wonder whether elevating the role of brands might be a behavior that would leave less wealthy people feeling discriminated against and unwelcome in our community. I wonder whether this might be our 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34 issue. Think about this, for example. If we came to worship wearing branded clothes that could have cost us literally hundreds of pounds, and that's easily done. Go down to Victoria Square, uh, have a look, run up a bill. And if others along with us start doing the same, and if that were to become some unofficial kind of a uniform in this place, everyone around here dresses like that, how welcoming an environment would that be for a less wealthy person? 
And what impact would that have on a family that's already part of our community that's experiencing long-term unemployment? Would we not have shown that same sort of discrimination that Paul is challenging in Corinth? Now that we've raised this issue, let me affirm the many of you who live with great integrity in this area. There are quite a number of people in this church who are relatively wealthy, but they've learned not to flaunt uh, their wealth. It's not something they use to, to differentiate themselves from other people. In many cases here, it's very hard to tell at a Sunday gathering, which is the household with the modest income uh, and which is the household with the greater wealth. Well done. Let me encourage you to continue to clothe yourselves more and more in Jesus Christ and less and less to, to worry about brands and the like. I knew the teenagers would be in at this point. It's kind of funny. You turned up on a Sunday. I was going to talk about this. Guys, I appreciate that brands play a huge role in contemporary youth culture. Can I, I share a few secrets about brands with you for a second? <coughs> brands may make you feel popular, but they might also make other people feel less popular and unloved. Brands will make you poor. You don't know about that yet because you're not paying for your brand and stuff yet. A lot of very wealthy people experience themselves poor because they're addicted to buying overly expensive branded goods. So no matter how much money they earn, there's never enough money because there's always more branded stuff to buy. Brands will make you poor. And hear this, brands don't make you more attractive. At least not to the people who matter. Not to God, and not to us in your church family. I would love it if this was a place where you could come safely and would be where you could grow up not worrying about any of that stuff. Yet you come here even without your brand armor on and know that you're accepted. <coughs> Brands are supposed to give us a sense of identity and feelings of self-worth. Whatever age you are, could I encourage you to begin now to find your identity and self-worth in something more than a label that you buy in a shop. God the Father loves you. Jesus Christ let them beat the living daylights out of him for you. And the Holy Spirit wants to indwell you to be an intimate presence in your life every moment of every day. You don't need a label on you.
the presence of the living God is our brand. That's what makes us different. And it's not a brand that turns anyone else away. It's a brand that reaches out to all rich and poor and says, come, you can be part of this too. Early in the passage that we're reading this morning, Paul challenged the Corinthians and he questioned whether their socially divided gatherings really are Christian worship at all. And he reminds us in verses 23 to 26 of the familiar words Jesus gave us uh, with the Lord's Supper. Paul wanted the Corinthians to see how far their gatherings had moved from God's original intention. Jesus' death, you see, and and his rising to life had achieved salvation for everyone, whether they were rich or whether they were poor. And the gospel flattens social divisions. So any way of being church that still allowed those to exist was was a failure on the part of the church to live out the gospel. It's no wonder that Paul is as appalled as he is. No wonder he tells them, listen, it would be better if you weren't meeting at all. Now that we're working through the passage, we might be able to be a bit clearer about what Paul has in mind. Verse 27. This is a really big verse in my psyche. I remember growing up with this verse ringing in my ears when I was a kid. The one who eats the bread and the wine and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner. It was kind of used to to make me feel like there was a standard you had to reach, a worthiness, before you could come to this table to have bread and wine with fellow believers. That's clearly not, as we've seen now in this context, what Paul's talking about. We're not supposed to agonize in a paranoid way all the time about whether I'm worthy enough. There are people who still don't come to the Lord's table because they've probably been taught wrongly from passages like this. That there's some standard we need to achieve before we can come and have God's grace. There's no standard. The only qualification to come to the table or to receive God's grace is to know that we're not worthy. When you wonder whether you're worthy to come to the table, then you qualify right there. Paul's talking about something different here. He's talking in this case about this scenario that we've been been talking about. The unworthy manner here is to come to the table that unites us while you have division and tolerate it. So he says in verse 28, a person ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. The body of the Lord's the the family. 
You can't eat and drink at the table if you don't recognize the family. Don't imagine, Paul says, that you'll receive the grace of God in your worship or through the sacraments while you're tolerating division in your gathering. Rather than experiencing blessing, you may just experience judgment. Let me close. We've been thinking here this morning about a a particular type of division in the church, division between rich and poor. But surely a passage like this would give us pause for thought about thinking about any kind of division that there is among us. I think we need to hear the warning of God's word here this morning. We need to repent of any action or attitude that undermines our unity as God's people. To take the steps that are needed to remedy that where it arises. And that's costly. That is costly for any of us who are trying to do it. But this is what will build deeper fellowship among us. This is what will enrich our lives. And this is what will finally catch the eye of the world around us. Maybe for some of us this morning, this this message that I've shared seems too hard. It feels like too big a sacrifice to give up the extravagant use of our our wealth. I've earned it. I'm entitled to it. I'll use it how I want. (coughs) I'm your pastor. The one charged with speaking God's word into your life. And I want to point you to Jesus. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul points the people to Jesus and he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. I wonder, are we willing to follow in the ways of Jesus? To become poor so that we and others around us might find the eternal riches that only Jesus can give. Let's pray. Father God, sometimes your word uh, probes and cuts like a knife. Sometimes it shows us things that we hadn't seen or hadn't thought about. Lord, if your word's done that for us today, we pray that you'd give us the grace to hear you. And to know that as always, you are doing your all for our utmost, our good. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to receive from you what we have heard this morning. 
And Lord, we pray that you would, you would build in us not a naive sense of happy community, but of a godly commitment to love one another deeply and dearly, to be put out for one another, to change the way we live our lives so that this community might flourish. Lord, we long for you to have glory here and beyond. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.